0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org.
1: Midway through this life we're bound upon, Pren wakes up to find himself in a figurative dark wood. At the end of Randy Boyagoda's previous novel, Original Pren, he'd found himself an accidental terrorist in a compromising position with an ex-girlfriend. Now in Boyagoda's new sequel, Dante's Indiana, he's dealing with the aftermath and hung in the middle the middle of his life, the middle of a trilogy of novels, in the middle of what seems like every major social crisis of his time from the adjunct crisis to the opioid crisis and everything in between. I'm Michael Farmer. Our guest today is Prin's creator, Randy Boyagota. He's a professor of English at the University of Toronto and the author of several other books. Dante's Indiana is out now from Biblioasis, and I'm delighted it's brought him here on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Randy.
0: Thank you very much, Michael. Great to be here.
1: I'd like to start with you reading a passage from the book. Would you mind reading the first page and a half or so?
0: Happy to do so. This is from the opening of Dante's Indiana. Riding through the valley, I looked up and lost my way. From the ground, my bike beside me, I caught my breath and bent my legs. Nothing cracked or snapped or stung. I pushed up on my elbows. It was midday in Toronto. Late November, a Thursday. People peddled and jogged past. Families fanned out along the path with food bags and strollers and toddlers leashed at the wrist. A few people waved to make sure that I was okay. I waved back. Loose dogs approached, curious, their tails whipping around. Their owners called out treats and punishments and they turned away from me. I slipped back down. I was alone in the city. I blinked a few times. Beyond the penciled high branches, the heavens looked like the gray white of rainwater in an empty swimming pool. I was alone in the city. The demon was still there. It was beside me. The creature squatted on a plinth wedged between the bike path and the murky river. It had bat wings and a dog face. The Thursday before, it hadn't been here. I was certain of that, at least, and had stared at it for far too long, mid-pedal past. My front wheel went off the path into a slurry of pea gravel. Small stones dug into my skin. Pushing into the earth made them go away. The ground was damp and forgiving. I looked at the gargoyle again. The battered creature must have been dumped out of some lightly condoed church. Smashed up bramble and bush ended near its base. Rutted lines of dried up mud that led across the path and up to the main road. Tire tracks. Someone had driven it down from the city proper unloaded it, right side up, and left. A statement? A warning? A joke? Had I taken a wrong turn, higher up the path? If they were here with me, we wouldn't lay down and blink and stare. We'd climb and call out and conquer. Molly left in July with the children to stay with her family for the summer. She took their winter clothes.
1: Thank you. The opening chapter makes it pretty clear, I think, that the novel is in some ways an adaptation of Dante's Inferno. If the title doesn't give it away, I think the, uh, the, those opening few paragraphs will. Uh, how seriously would you recommend that readers take that relationship uh, there are 33 chapters in the novel. I didn't take the time to read through Dante at the same time I was reading the novel to see how much each chapter corresponds to its mm-hmm. equivalent canto, but I didn't get the feeling it was a super tight connection. Am, am I way off on that?
0: No, I, I'd say that you are um, on very much if off in one way. Uh, it is not, I would say, fully an adaptation of Dante's Inferno. I would say in some ways, the original print would have a closer kind of mm-hmm sensibility to Dante's Inferno and that print really was lost, you know, in Dante's Inferno, sorry, in, yes, in, in, in the in original print. Um, I would say, Michael, that an earlier version of this book was very much a Dante paint by numbers type of story where you really could identify resonances between the chapters in this book and then uh, certain chapters of either Inferno or Purgatorio, but as I was writing it, I discovered that this really didn't make sense, uh, that I, was, I wasn't so much writing my own novel as I was trying to write some kind of homage to Dante, or I was mm-hmm. trying to be way too conscientious and responsible to Dante, and that made for a terrible original work of literary fiction. And so at a certain point, the scaffolding kind of broke in a good way, And I realized that, in fact, what I was doing was working and writing in what I'll call the Dante comic universe. And so there are endless uh, resonances. I was just chatting with a Dante scholar earlier this week, who's in the middle of the novel, and was uh, very much enjoying the various Dante references and the fact that they don't follow uh, exactly the pathway of Inferno, Purgatory, Paradiso. And I would say that the the big question of the book really is whether this is indeed Inferno or Purgatorio. In other words, is this a, a repeating set of failures and fires that will lead to nothing else? Or is there a sense of ascent, of development, of, of a purgative fire even, such as there are fires in the second novel in my trilogy? And so I think that's the question. You said it very well, I think, in your introduction about Prin being caught in the middle uh, just as you know, in a sense, uh, purgatory itself is the middle canto, the middle state for those you know who have died, and you know their their ascent, their 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 eternal status has not yet been assigned.
1: Right. Well, and it's interesting because the theme park, and I'm 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 going to try not to give too much away about this novel. There's lots of twists and turns that I'm sure our listeners will be uh, excited to discover for themselves. But print ends up uh, working as a kind of advisor at this Dante themed amusement park that's being built in Terre Haute Indiana and it's funny cuz they're building uh an inferno and they're building a paradiso but because the uh because the guy who who is building it is protestant they're not putting in a purgatorio right. which as any good reader of Dante knows that's the key book in the in the trilogy right like the purgatorio mm-hmm. is the important one um and and so it it yeah i mean maybe maybe what you're getting at then is that they're in, in trying to force it into the inferno, we're misunderstanding the whole situation.
0: Well, well, I think I, I, that that's, that's a good reading. I, I think there's another way to make sense of it. Uh, there's the nuts and bolts fact that when Prin moves to Terre Haute to take on this job serving, as you say, as a kind of consultant and go between for this evangelical millionaire and this group of people building a Dante theme park, um, part of the, the, The plot machinations that make this possible involve his taking long-term ownership or at least kind of leasing out for a long time to abandon basketball arenas in town. Uh, the point is there aren't three, there's just two. And so that that is a kind of a practical feature. And then the kind of second point, as you say, is that kind of theologically and culturally, purgatory doesn't make sense to Protestants the same way it does to Catholics. But then the third point. Um, as I suspect you might've realized, is that Terre Haute, Indiana is purgatory itself. Um, It was not without design that I chose Terre Haute, which of course is high ground in English. Uh, And as you know, in Dante, purgatorio is is figured as a mountain, as a a high point on, you know, on on the kind of Dante's imagining of the world. So in a sense, um, Terre Haute itself is the purgatory with the two arenas serving as Inferno and Paradiso.
1: Oh, you know, I uh, you you're giving me too much credit. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but now it makes perfect sense, right?
1: It does. Yeah, I mean and the fact that it is the the middle novel of the trilogy should have yes. should have tipped me off that it's Purgatorio you're playing, you're playing with here and not Inferno. Uh well,
0: and then the other one that I'll just add in is that um you know, for 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 your listeners who hopefully will, will pick up a physical copy of the novel. Uh, the, the beautiful design by biblio oasis and by michelle vrena the uh, the book designer has on the inside cover a map of inferno inferno that is the the amusement park and on the uh, on the back cover the the, the flap is uh, a design of paradiso the, the 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 paradise amusement park and in between is purgatory get yeah, it the that's book that's, itself
1: that's no, I, I have an excuse there. I got sent an advanced reading copy, so I don't have Ah, uh, so you I don't have it? Yeah, it's, nice very,
0: oh, it's very cool designs.
1: Did you have this in mind when you were writing Original Print that, 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 that you would be writing a sequel that would be Purgatorio and maybe a third one that would be Paradiso?
0: Not at the beginning. Uh, the, the earliest version of Original Print was a 600 page loose, baggy monster of a book, it was a, a wannabe John Irving novel. You know, kind of ranging about in a kind of madcap way. Um, and it wasn't working. And my editor suggested to me that what what I was really trying to do was write a, a Kingsley Amos or an Evelyn Waugh novel. I was writing a short comic fiction, you know, a 200 page book, mm-hmm. but it was taking me 600 pages to do it. And so what he proposed was that I cut out 400 pages of the novel, more or less, oh, is to that make all... it into what it was. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I, I didn't exactly feel like someone had just shot my puppy, but I certainly had a, uh, an investment in some of those pages, not all of them necessarily. And then uh, my editor and my publisher together said the following to me. They said, we think you have found your rabbit. We think you have found, you know, referencing John Updike's Rabbit Angstrom, a character who is not you, but provides you with a sensibility and a set of situations that you can inhabit pretty confidently and comfortably to tell stories about the world around you. Mm -hmm. So don't treat this as a one-off, but ask yourself, is there more to this than only one novel? And it was right around that time, Michael, that I started working at the University of Toronto on a completely separate project. I decided I was going to write a Dante, a Hiker's Guide to Dante. Uh, you know, like some cool coffee table millennial book or something, right? Where you you instead of doing a kind of literary guide, you treat the whole um, the whole of the Divine Comedy as an imaginative terrain that needs to be traversed, because that's very much what it is, if you if you think about it. And when I started doing that, I very quickly realized that what I really wanted to do was tell a fuller story about about Prin. And uh, about America, at the moment we're in about spiritual life, about family life, about politics. And so then quickly this turned into the second. And then at that point it just became clear to me that this was a trilogy.
1: Well, I would I would love to hear about the way you put it together because it seems to me that now I- I've never written a novel, I've never finished a short story. I don't have I don't have whatever gift or whatever. Uh, virtue of stick to itness you have to have to do that. So, you know, grain of salt with all this. But mm-hmm. it, it seems to me you have at least three layers that you're having to put together at the same time, and I would love to hear how you did it. So, on the one hand, you have the parallels to Dante, however strong they are, however weak they are, you know, whatever you're doing with those. On the other, you have this continuation of a story you begin with original print such that this novel has to make sense in the context of that earlier novel. Mm-hmm. But then, on the third hand, you have to write a novel that can stand as a novel, which yes, is to say exactly. it's, it, you don't have to know Dante to read it. Maybe you don't even have to know original print to read it. I, I'm mm-hmm. just interested, as a non-novelist, how you balanced all of those concerns alongside whatever other concerns I'm totally unaware of.
0: I, I think those are the three major ones with a fourth that I'll say more about in a moment. Um, I think I, I, I might have, you know, kind of addressed the first one in that I, I freed myself of the pressure of writing a Dante novel, as I said earlier, by by not writing a Dante by numbers book, right? Not trying to find these perfect uh, and clear parallels, but in fact, just just moving around in the Dante universe, and you know, seeing the world around me, seeing the world around us, contemporary American life with Dante's uh, Dante's eyes, Dante's vision, I should say, better. Um, Kind of reveals moments primarily of inferno and purgatory, but sometimes of paradiso as well. So that that worked. The second one was was tough because um, yes, this is clearly an extent an extension in very straightforward ways of original print, but I needed and wanted the book to have a standalone aesthetic and narrative integrity. Have you seen Michael Back to the Future Two?
1: Have I seen Back to the Future too? On my first date with my wife, we worked out the timeline for Back to the Future too. And okay. I'll tell you this too. I saw Back yeah. to the Future too before I saw Back to the Future. So I think I that know is, exactly where you're going with this.
0: Well, okay, I was gonna say that's that is very strange. And it is, I mean, it is clear to me that God wants you and your wife to be married. If that's how yeah. you spent your your first date. Oh, yeah, that she um, would
1: continue to date me after that.
0: It, well, that, that, that was what was in the back of my head, to be honest. Um, but, it, you know, Back to the Future 2 is, to my mind, useless because, uh, except for the fact that it led you to married life, which is fantastic. <laughs> but other other than that virtue of it, uh, it only it only has significance as a connective to Back to the Future and Back to the Future 3. And, you know, w- w- what I was much more interested in was Godfather 2 where you know if you think about that as a quote-unquote sequel you don't really need the godfather to to kind of just be amazed by by the the second godfather movie so i was i was trying to make sure that i was you know in that second category than the first i think the other thing that was really of of mind to me is uh, for me as a writer for print as a character both of us have to grow a little bit from book to book this shouldn't be yet another zany adventure with your recurring crazy madcap hero mm-hmm. you know uh, i was i was very aware of avoiding that tendency where oh here's another print novel and then you can just stop thinking because you know what you're going to get some you know some some silly wordplay and a few crazy events and some provo- provocative comments about about god and and life or something Ugh that I was very aware of avoiding um, the serialization of my own work, I guess you could say. Uh, so that led to kind of what I'm trying to do with number three was this book had to matter as if original print didn't exist in, you know, in some ways. But the fourth thing, and this frankly is the, the one that was kind of most interesting to me as a writer, uh, were those kind of demands on my time and attention as a storyteller that came from the characters themselves after they came to life and had their own, you know, with obvious qualifications since they're still imaginative creations, but had their own kind of motive force where I had to follow them and give them fuller stories than perhaps I was expecting. They did things I wasn't expecting. Uh, I dropped a pair of headphones just there. My apologies. But they did things that I wasn't expecting that I had to respond to and work with. And that led sometimes to tensions with my editor, but it also led, to, frankly, for me in the act of writing, some of the most delightful moments in the book.
1: Yeah, I, and that that that's a process I've heard about from uh, from other novelists as well. Is that in in some ways you you can't control it too much? I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, James Joyce's Ulysses, which famously maps on to the events from the, the Odyssey. Although I've always well, i've always had trouble reading it frankly um but over the weekend i watched uh oh brother where art thou i'd seen it many times mm-hmm. but oh brother where art thou seems like a better um a better version of i'm sorry a, a better analog to what you're doing here not a better version of what you're doing mm-hmm. here uh than than uh than ulysses in, in the sense that yeah i mean th- there's the the big the big moments from uh from the odyssey all show up in oh brother where art thou but they don't go in order and yes, exactly. There, there's lots of things you could kind of debate about. And it, it ends up, you don't need to know anything about the, the odyssey to enjoy a brother where art thou, but it will, you know, if you know a few things, it'll make it mm-hmm. clearer. So it does to, to bring in another, uh, to bring in another pop cultural product it, that, 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 that seems more cl- closer to what you're doing than, than some of the more um, straightforward parallels.
0: Well, and, to the and those are very much, yeah, well, thank you. And those are very much the case with Joyce. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and you know kind of be down on Joyce for for Ulysses as Ulysses, but you know, looking back a hundred years, it really does feel. Like, I just reread Ulysses this summer, actually, and I was really struck, <coughs> excuse me, by how I don't know how how plotting at times the connections are, mm-hmm. you know, and and how not, not gonging is the wrong. Because that's too critical, but just how how emphatic he is in making a clear connection, uh, even by chapter title, and as you say, sequence and characterization to characters in um, in, in between the you know his epic and and, and Homer's, uh, and then obviously you know with 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 wordplay and modernist modernist writing doing an infinite number of things within that very rigid structure. And I think we're just, we're, we're, we're much further along in in literary terms because of that kind of a play that such as Joyce did to allow for, you know, frankly, a, a slightly more easygoing approach, which is what I, I used here. And again, sometimes it was that the, the characters or the events themselves surprised me into making a Dante connection that I wouldn't otherwise have made.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's more like Dante is writing this novel through you then you're rewriting Dante? Yeah, you know,
0: I I read Dante every day. I read a canto a day every day for five years while working on this book. And so what that meant was I was reading it, you know, in a perpetual cycle rather than, oh, oh, now I'm writing a dark part of the novel and I should be in Inferno. That that never happened, right? It kind of kept things free and open. And then it just, it, it led me to often kind of have to have to respond to clearly. This is a dilemma that I can see as a dilemma because of Dante. You know, whether I see with, with opioids or um, or conflict over the name of a of a roller coaster ride, right?
1: Right, right. And I, again, I don't want to go too, too far into those sure, details sure. because because they they'll come as a surprise to your readers, and I don't want to take that surprise away. Uh, but I mean, it it's goes without saying probably that that all of this is also the opportunity for a great deal of satire. This is a mode you're well known for, I think. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, But I also think that maybe at the heart of all good satire is a certain mixed attitude toward the object of the satire. So you've got this fundamentally ridiculous idea turning the Inferno and Paradiso into an amusement park. But in the novel, it's spearheaded by this guy who has a really intense and meaningful relationship to Dante's work that you're not exactly making fun of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not exactly sure what my question is here. Maybe something like how do you as a novelist thread the needle between satire and understanding and mockery and whatever other sophisticated forms of humor might, uh, might be involved in this.
0: That's a, that's a great question. And I would say that running running along the, the very brink of tipping into parody or caricature or kind of nastiness, nasty-minded uh, representation, is the challenge you run, I think, as a satirist. Uh, with what you were describing, perhaps unexpectedly, at first, what came to mind was St. Augustine. And St. Augustine suggested that the purpose of all literature is the cultivation of caritas, that we should grow in love, through reading, uh, reading books, reading stories, and grow in love of you know, each other and ultimately of God. And for whatever, for whatever set of reasons, uh, such is the case that I, as you say, am a satirist. And so the challenge I run is how to ensure that my books, at some level at least, make it possible for you, Michael, and our listeners to grow in love um, from what they're reading, when my sensibility is such that I'm not going to write something that is, uh, well, certainly not saccharine, but also not, you know, not a balm to the reader. Right? I'm thinking here suddenly of Marilyn Robinson. Some of the most beautiful moments in Robinson's fiction, there is a sense of a, a great deal of balm, uh, of consolation in the in a time of suffering or sorrow, and that's just not. That's not inside my uh, my sensibility as a writer. And so, if you take someone like Charlie Tracker, who is the uh, the businessman, the impresario who hires Prin to help build this Dante theme park, he is a Vietnam vet who had um, unexpected and very uh, very difficult experiences in Vietnam that brought together. Um, his his kind of lived experience of the war uh, with the fact that he had a a friend in the war who himself was obsessed with Dante. Uh, Those two things then lead to a kind of lifelong Midwestern guy's hobby, right? And some people collect antique baffles. Some people buy tropical fish. For Charlie Tracker, it's Dante stuff. So he, he collects Dante memorabilia. He reads the Divine Comedy in a regular way. And then upon his retirement from his, uh, from the the small town packaging company that he founded, uh, he decides to turn his attention to creating this Dante theme park. And you're right that it is in so many different ways ridiculous, but he takes it dead seriously. And my work as a writer is to do justice and honor to his taking it seriously without ever hiding the fact that this is absurd, and I would say that the the writer in contemporary terms who gives us the best example of this would be someone like George Saunders. And I know you, Michael, uh, yourself, you would said earlier uh, before we started recording that you you have a background in American literature, so I'm sure you're aware of Saunders' work. Oh yes. But George Saunders, you know, I think does a su- does it does a superb job better than most anybody I can think of of setting up absurd situations and then leading us to love, in an Augustinian sense, love the characters in these absurd word, worlds. I think to a certain extent, David Foster Wallace is the same, but that's what I'm trying to do with this book. And I'll, I'll add very gratefully that in terms of the responses to my work, um, analogies to both Fa- David Foster Wallace and George Saunders have come up. So that that's at least one indicator to me that I'm, I'm hitting the mark.
1: And Irving's pretty good at that too, to be fair.
0: John Irving's great at it too. Very good point. And John Irving uh, is um, also someone who's been very generous towards this novel. Yeah, John Irving is is great at it. Um, but it's in, in his case, it's part of a, a kind of larger De Keynesian world.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I
1: definitely I definitely feel the the Saunders. What's the what's the Saunders story? It's um it's about a guy whose dead grandmother appears to him and tells him to become a male stripper.
0: I don't know it, but now I know what I'm gonna read when we're done chatting.
1: Yeah, it's it's from um it's from Pastoralia. I don't remember the name of the story, but you should okay. uh cause because that that's the that's the tone I think you're striking um here with Charlie Tracker. It's Thank you. yeah, I mean the situation you're describing is ridiculous. And yeah, like there, there's this purity at the heart of it yes. that allows you not to dismiss it and teaches the reader i don't know i don't know how much of a moral purpose you see behind your work but it teaches the reader in some sense not to dismiss
0: ridiculous no what well, well i think so and then i think uh, again joining you and not wanting to give away too much of the plot as you know as the story develops and we learn about um charlie tracker's son's interests in renewing the company business in the town uh, a greater urgency sets in to make sure that this theme park is a success, because if it's not, the other option, which is for the uh, the local plant to begin packaging opioids for local distribution, is going to be the only way to keep people employed and keep the town alive, even if it's alive in a way that is, you know, kind of punishing in a very real 21st century American rust belt way, and then also, you know, in Dantean terms.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And you, you have people who are who are almost literally in hell already, and this would just, this yeah, would just drag exactly. more people into their orbit.
0: And they, and they and the, the the Dantean part of it is they have to stay there because it's the only way they can keep jobs to kind of keep their relatives in treatment or something. Right. right. And that that for me was the the dilemma that Dante. To something you said earlier, Dante helped me see with such clarity.
1: Well, let's listen to another uh, excerpt from the sure. novel. This is from yeah, chapter speaking fifteen. Speaking of which, yeah. So sure. this is the description of indiana yes. a satirical description
0: uh, to some degree although people who have live in indiana and have read this novel have told me that i certainly seem to get to get it more right than not i did find okay. myself
1: wondering what an Indiana would uh would think of yeah. this description
0: uh, okay so just to set it up for for our friends uh who are listening at this point uh, prin is On his way with two of the kind of older middle management guys who work on the theme park, the three of them are going to visit an abandoned theme park outside town to get some ideas for Dante's Indiana, for their theme park. Okay. Um, That morning, Nick and Frank picked me up in front of my apartment for our visit to Dizzy's World, the only amusement park still open in the area. I brought along a multi-pack of Pringles. It was my way of helping Nick stay off the Doritos. This got a good laugh, and I liked that these guys liked me too. I didn't say much from the narrow bench backseat of Frank's burgundy crew cab F-150, which was space shuttle clean and smelt like a lemon grove of baby wipes. With talk radio hollering, Today on the Perry Schlaffler Show, the brilliant host of Breakfast at Tiffany Trump's, the truth behind Jerusalem artichokes, and more of your calls about the Gary and Jackson case. I listened to Nick and Frank trade stories about what they'd eaten, ridden, thrown up, and won on their many trips to Dizzy's world, back when they were young, and they were dating their wives, and when their kids were young. Lots, in all cases, even if the rides and attractions had changed over the years. Neither of them had been to the park since the end of the American century. Terre Haute thinned out fast along Highway 42, after it stopped running beside the eastbound interstate. For 40 minutes, we drove through big, fat, flat farmland, the ground in springtime looking like blanched brown rubble, no longer frozen, but not yet furrowed. Industrial sprinklers lined the field's far edges like giant steel crabs waiting for the go-ahead. Beside newer and older and busted up and fossilized barns were all kinds of cars and trucks, four-wheelers, dirt bikes, and at least one army jeep some were on blocks, others were tarped, all were American. The farmstead houses were generally older but dignified, or tiny and dollhouse perfect, or tiny and maybe abandoned, with front curtains that looked like they'd been closed since the day the officer and chaplain knocked on the door with news from Normandy, Vietnam, Afghanistan. Beside the long straight drives and bright fat hatchet mailboxes were shuttered vegetable stands, some with signs promising to see you next summer, Others still offering fruit pies and silky corn sweeter than sugar. Closer to the road, there were cars for sale and signs: homemade, professional, and professionally made to look homemade, asking you to choose adoption, love Jesus, support the troops, study natural law, support the police, bring back the gold standard. Never forget 9/11. Never forget 9/11 was an inside job. John 3:16. John 3:16: "Make America great again. Make America great again, again, and again, and again. Comet is coming for our children. Vote yes or no to assorted Indiana ballot measures, sheriffs, judges, just say no to mat clinics. And also God bless America. Some of the farms had deer stands and a few had billboards. Half were advertisements to advertise here and the rest were for bankruptcy protection services, treatment clinics, churches, the nearest Cracker Barrel, and law firms specializing in workplace accident settlements. Just before farmland gave way to a sudden, sharp bolt of evergreen forest, a billboard. A circus showman with a spinning globe for a head promised fun for the whole family. Just three miles and five minutes ahead, he pointed towards a park that looked like a walled medieval city. Surrounding the globe-headed showman was a constellation of starry-eyed, apple-cheeked children. The sign was faded and peeling, and the children's faces looked scabrous and anemic. Three more billboards counted down miles and minutes to the destination. "'Are you sure this place is open?' I said. "'There's cars in the parking lot,' said Nick. "'There's people in the parking lot,' said Frank. "'And what's the plan again?' I said. "'Yeah, Frank, this was your idea. Don't get me wrong. I like thinking about the old days and all, but what's the goal here?' We can't exactly drive to Disney World, and obviously we can't get tickets on short notice to that creationism theme park down in Kentucky. Do you mean Genesis Extreme or BJ's Bible World? Genesis Extreme, BJ's Bible World moved to Tennessee after they lost that court case. Whereas Disney's World is right here near town. The plan is we'll walk through and figure out if there's anything, ideas or even models, at least for the main rides, like those spinning teacups for doomed lovers. Right, Pryn? Yes. Paolo and Francesca, forever whirling around each other. See, so yeah, stuff, stuff we could use for the park. Then Prin brings it back to the professors and gets them on board and either we send it to the consultants or tender it ourselves, okay? Nick and I nodded.
1: I, uh, I really appreciated your treatment of amusement parks in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something eminently ridiculous about an amusement park, there's no getting around mm-hmm. it. Um, Despite or probably because they serve as sites for secular pilgrimages for so many people. But mm-hmm. what, what I like is you steered clear of like the Disney worlds and the Universal Studios and you you focused on the regional amusement parks, which <laughs> uh, that's a, a totally different thing. What sort of research did you do into amusement parks for this for this novel?
0: Um. You know, as a writer, you do research in a couple of ways. There's intentional research where you go to a place and you turn your radar on, you take your notes, you sit around, you observe. I certainly did that. I went to um, three creationism theme parks in D.C. and Kentucky. I went to the Bible Museum, which I guess is more of a museum than a theme park, although it has a bit of a theme park vibe in D.C., and then i went down to creationism and ark encounter sure. in kentucky do you know these places
1: oh yes my uh, my parents went there just a couple of years ago
0: there you go so i went there and that was full on intentional theme park related research um and that you know i kind of draw on as you know the novel has a as a an intersecting story related to Genesis Extreme and the people behind Genesis Extreme. And there's some, some parts of the novel that are set at Genesis Extreme. And even if I created that whole cloth, including the, um, the reality TV show, America's Got Jesus, uh, it comes from, to some degree, you know, of visits to those theme parks. But then I would point to two other kinds of theme park experiences that maybe informed this. One would be here, as you know, I live in Toronto, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, There is a government-sponsored theme park. You can imagine how this story ends. That is the most Canadian
1: phrase I've ever heard. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So a government-sponsored theme park called Ontario Place. Uh, That, shockingly, uh, shut down after kind of failing after a little while. And it's down the water. It's going to be, there's plans to revitalize it, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, um, I was going for a bike ride along the lake shore, whenever it was a few years ago, and I discovered that you could kind of. bike around a certain number of barriers and then just move around inside this theme park this theme park that I remember going to as a kid it was our local you know very cheap pretty boring government sponsored Canadian theme park and so. I just kind of wandered around there for a morning on my bike. And then I went back a couple of other times and there was something about the fact that it was kind of shuttered and kind of, uh, you know, the paint was flaking. It felt it felt abandoned, but it also felt in a weird way, a little bit inhabited. You could tell probably some people were probably rough living around there. Uh, so that was in my mind. And then the third is that my wife is from Milwaukee and one of her sisters lives in Nina, Wisconsin. And somewhere north of Nina is a full on classic, unapologetic, small town amusement park with a rickety little roller coaster and kind of old, slightly rusted out rides, but it's popular. And I've gone there a couple of times over the years with my extended family. So I would say that was the third one that was definitely in my head.
1: Yeah, the, the, the kind of, the chintziness of all of this. Now, I mean, the the dizzy's world you're describing here is genuinely tragic, right? Because this is mm-hmm. this is a place that is more or less abandoned. It's still open, but um, people aren't well, taking examples there.
0: And it's basically turned into a, a you know a dwelling place for addicts.
1: Right, right. Um, but some of those some of those smaller ones aren't quite tragic, but they aren't quite comic either. And thus they do strike me as the the perfect place for for satire, because you can kind of bring the tragedy out of the comedy and the comedy out of the tragedy.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, you, you know, and then there's also just that, that that heightened sense of intensity. You know, the other thing that I should mention, didn't mentioned it earlier, um, the, the, the the positive version of a Canadian theme park experience is something called the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition, which is, like a, you know, like a summer festival sort of thing, two weeks at the end of summer. There's these, you know, many of these all over America as well, I'm sure. Um, and I go there in non-pandemic times almost every year at the end of summer. It's My birthday's at the end of the summer. So it's a kind of a family thing. We'll go there for my birthday. And it's intense. It's crowded. And it's crowded with a demographic that I don't see, Michael, as yes. a writer and professor at a global research university living in downtown Toronto. Yes. You know, it's a completely different world that is 30 minutes away from me um economically and culturally and it's great fun but it's also a reminder of how segmented we are these days by our socioeconomic and cultural positions and and so you go there and there's a sense of kind of it's it's there's a sense of kind of alarming joy right everybody's just sort of amped up the music the food the crowds um and 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 it is an intense festive experience that you're kind of having with and for each other in a way and again not something that in frankly our demographic we experience very much these days and so uh that also probably kind of feeds into some of the intensity that you would see in the in the theme park proper moments in the novel
1: i it reminds me we we got a deal and went on a cruise a few years ago and mm-hmm. we met all these people who go on. Was it five. a
0: Back to the Future theme cruise? No,
1: it should have been though. I would definitely. Yeah, that would that. have been
0: amazing, right? Okay, we, anniversary we, planning. But go on. We met.
1: We met all these people who go on four or five cruises a year. Yes. And it's, it's like it's it's not a sort of person that I knew existed, and uh, <laughs> it's certainly not a sort of person that I imagined I would spend any time talking to, and right. yet you know they were kind of wonderful people, and and yeah, so I get what you're saying about the. Um, the expo
0: this i this idea that um well and i think i mean it's your point that there's a whole culture to it my mother as we speak is on a cruise in some nondescript i think the place is called princess island it's a, it sounds made up but i think it's a <laughs> sort of private cruise ship island she went to princess island with her longtime companion al and the two of them are down there, and what I found amazing, again, pre-pandemic, they have, they have cruise ship friends, and they, they line up, and they go on cruise ships together from all over the place, and they don't otherwise see each other. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one other one. We went to, where were we? South Carolina, something. I forget why, a few years ago. We ended up in the Carolinas, and uh, it was my, one of my daughter's birthdays, and she wanted to see dolphins. So we went on a dolphin watching cruise, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, along the coast. And it was, you know, it was fun and fine, et cetera, et cetera, exactly what you would expect. And then at the end of it, and you can imagine the scene in origin in Dante's Indiana that this led to. At the end of it, before any of us were let off the dolphin cruise ship, we all sat and then um, the tour guide asked all veterans to stand. And so a few old guys stood up, and they're all wearing their kind of battleship hats. And then they played uh, "God Bless the USA." You know, the league is it uh-huh. league green? Oh yes. And we all and and it felt it felt like a religious moment. Uh huh. And and we all sat there and saluted the veterans on the dolphin watching cruise, and we all listened to "God Bless the USA" together. One of the worst songs ever written. Absolutely, but it 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 felt like sort of Christian very patriotic incredibly maudlin and saccharine and silly but and you will i'm sure appreciate this everyone there took it dead seriously oh yeah it was real you know and that honor of these veterans was absolutely sincere and real and um and i'm just i'm just soaking all of that in obviously and then it comes out in different ways in my fiction
1: Yeah, we went to Dollywood uh, last week. Yeah, you mentioned this.
0: That's right. You mentioned this when we were emailing about this show.
1: Right. And, And one of the weird things about Dollywood is either because it's partially owned by Dolly Parton or because it's the other part of it is owned by the people who do Silver Dollar City, which is a Uh, An old fashioned theme park in Branson, Missouri, but there's Mm -hmm. lots and lots of Jesus stuff at Dollywood Mm -hmm. like they'll play they'll play Christian music over the loudspeakers and the Southern Gospel Hall of Fame is there. And as Mm -hmm. someone who's been to Disney World many, many times, it's so profoundly disorienting. (laughs) <laughs> to hear religious stuff at a theme park because Disney goes out of their way not to talk about it yeah of course of course um and and you know on the one hand it's chintzy and cheap and kind of stupid but on the other hand there's something pure in that right like when you when yeah. you hear when you hear the bluegrass band bland, band bland is is right I suppose when you hear the bluegrass band playing a Christian song at the theme park there's something there's something kind of wonderful about that so well, I, I I, I had all of this on my mind uh, writing the questions for this. For this. Book. Well, because
0: part of it, part of it is, you know, as a reader, let's say, who might not spend a lot of time in Dolly Land, um, you get a chance to inhabit this world, right? Right. And and again, to to to, to do the easy to do the easy thing would be to only see the silliness, the obesity, the questionable choice of how you spend your money, all the things that you can kind of. Uh, that, that, become, that are immediately apparent when you go to these sorts of places. Right. And again, for an, an urbane literary fiction reader, oh, look, confirmation, confirmation, confirmation. Um, but the greater imaginative challenge is to see yourself in these experiences or at least to kind of understand some, in, some irreducible human dignity and joy, even if it's not on your terms. Right. and you know, why else do we read but to find that kind of thing in books right and so i i certainly you know see those sorts of opportunities in these kinds of places and in the um, the the chance to visit them and then again this is something that i'm trying to do imaginatively with dante's indiana
1: Right. And and I think your description of the area around that theme park is so perfect. It's, it's, I, I've not been to Indiana in any meaningful way, but that is definitely a description of rural South Georgia. It's Mm. a description of the, the kind of in between parts of Florida and and other places that I've, I've actually driven around. And and yeah, I, I mean, it's just that, that, that tone of, what tragedy that has been lightened by absurdity,
0: mm. you, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and listen, um, I, you know, as a writer, I take this as a deep compliment because I've never been to those parts of Georgia and Florida. What I have done is spend hundreds upon hundreds of hours driving along the I-94 and highway 69 between Port Huron, Michigan and Milwaukee, Wisconsin going sure. back and forth to visit my in-laws and their families and the hours spent in what you just described these in-between places that are kind of sad and and feel almost vague until you suddenly see some you know come see the world's largest dinosaur cast right not <laughs> right. not a fossil not even a dinosaur itself but the cast or
1: something or ho- home to the boysenberry festival yeah you exactly think, yeah, or I'd like this... to go
0: to the boysenberry festival <laughs> there's, like there's some guy I think he just collects old giant um, tractor wheels and he has them kind of set up and I don't even like I don't know what it is <laughs> we've never stopped to look but there's just like a yard of giant clearly intentionally arranged tractor wheels and and I don't know there's something kind of fantastic about that you know so yes I've 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 heard from from others in different parts of the United States, that I, I seem to have caught something in that that the in-between spaces of America, not the not the built-up suburbs, not the built-up cities, but and, and not exactly kind of thriving rural America such right. as it is these days. The I mean, abandoned this, this places. other space. Yeah, the abandoned places where people still live. it
1: strikes me that we live in kind of a dangerous time for satire because mm-hmm. we live in what I'll call a golden age of stridency. Mm -hmm. So you have some more or less acceptable targets here, rural Americans, anybody's allowed to make fun of them, you make fun of Sri Lankan immigrants, which I think you probably have the right to do. But then you also dive into one of the most contentious issues in modern life, which is to say police brutality. Now, Mm -hmm. the joke is not on the young man who was killed by a police officer in this book. But given the general tone of the conversation around events like the one narrated in this book, did you worry mm-hmm. about what the public response would be to your using it as a plot point?
0: Well, where the worry came, to be honest, uh, was after the book was finished and we were just completing it and reading it for publication, at which point there were news reports of a young man named Dante Wright, who was actually back in the news very recently because of the related court case, Dante Wright killed in a police hall in a police encounter and uh, it, it doesn't give much way to say the following that one of the big conflict points in the novel is that Prin um, and his and his co-workers decide that the major attraction in Dante's Indiana is going to be a roller coaster named Garyon and Garyon is the uh, innocent-faced monster who Um, helps Dante and Virgil get from one part of hell to another because there's no way for them physically to traverse it. And so the idea is it's this long dragon-like monster that has a human face and it's intended to be kind of the embodiment of deceit. And uh, the name is Geryon, G-E-R-Y-O-N. So it's all set up, here we go. And then uh, a black teenager in Illinois named Geryon Jackson, A instead of E, is killed. Um, in an encounter with police, and this leads very quickly to, as you say, kind of the major controversy and conflict in the novel. When Charlie Tracker, uh, the the person in charge of it all, says, "We're not changing the name of this roller coaster for the same reason that Dante sent popes to hell." This is the name of the roller coaster, and then it leads to a giant controversy. So the controversy plays out in the novel, and kind of all sides descend on Indiana, on, on Terre Haute, Indiana, to protest. Uh, to protest or defend um, this roller coaster for either being faithful to Dante or a racist roller coaster. And that's all... Doesn't
1: somebody at one point call it an African American demon from like they're trying to make Dante into a racist? <laughs> yes. Yeah they're
0: based, yeah there's a there's a there's an encounter with it with a with a, a medieval a medieval studies scholar who observes that the, the theme park is, has this roller coaster named after uh, an African-American character from Dante's Divine Comedy. <laughs> you know, and, and that is a, a, like, like a passing move, right? To kind of suggest the, the, the convolutions that our stride and age, as you said earlier, make possible. So all of that, as far as I'm concerned, I'm ready to do and accept kind of as is the, the consequence. And I can say a little bit more about, about why, but um, then Dante Wright is killed. And that, you know, Dante, D-A-U-N-T-E, and I'm about to bring up the book called Dante's Indiana with this, this scene in it, that was a source of unsettlement for sure. And I, I mentioned as much, I address it such as I can in the acknowledgements. Um, but, you know, to be honest, even this morning, my wife was observing, she's kind of surprised uh, at how comparatively little all of this has come up in terms of public responses to the book. Uh, I will say one very nice response I had from one journalist. Um, she pointed out that at a certain point in the book, Prin is arguing with uh, with Charlie that they should change the name of the ride to Hellraiser or Hellrider or something, you know, kind of safe like that. And Charlie disagrees. And then um, eventually another character quits in protest. A young black woman involved with the project quits in protest. Um, and Prin makes an observation about, you know, this this innocent black teenager who was killed by police, and Charlie immediately says back, "Innocent, really? I guess we watch different news." And the many readers, not just the one, but many, have pointed out that they they really resonated with that moment, with the fact yeah. that in a in a kind of very uh, brittle feeling age. Um, what does fiction make possible, but a chance for this kind of conversation to demonstrate um, that, you know, there's no thumb on the scale there for me as a writer, right? Charlie Tracker watches different news, so he has a very different understanding of who Gary and Jackson was than, than uh, Prin does, who watches a different kind of news, right? Um, and if you put that together, to my mind, that is being as as kind of That is doing justice, such as one can, to the reality of American life these days and to that sense of kind of incompatible realities being the same reality shared by these characters. So that's what I'm trying to do with this satire.
1: Well, and because the actual killing takes place so far off screen, off page, uh, you don't have to answer the question whether he actually was innocent. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so so, Mm -hmm. i mean your your readers are going to side with charlie or not probably based on how they side with this other stuff but you're not actually taking a stand on it which is no no, because
0: i shouldn't as a writer i should just create those conditions and the hope is if you were naturally drawn to Prince's perspective then you know like a pebble in your shoe charlie's point about watching different news should should kind of bug you a little bit not bug you and oh you must watch crazy right-wing news but bug you as in well I guess there are different perspectives on what's happened here, um, right? Like, and and vice versa. If you're if you're someone who's more of a Charlie Tracker has more of a Charlie Tracker response to the situation, that that's the hope, and that's the kind of the the enlarging that can happen from reading fiction.
1: I thought your treatment of the whole argument around Carrie and Jackson. Uh, was very well done in, in the sense that it, it, there's a lot of mendacity in it, right? There's a lot of people mm-hmm. who were saying things to become famous, saying things because it's what they're supposed to say, but also you see a purity even in some of their motives.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And again, that, it's, it's all that messiness that I'm trying to kind of put together as part of, uh, as part of trying to show us what a what, what Dante vision of contemporary America looks like. That's the book.
1: Well, we're running up on time here. So uh, here on Christian Humanist Profiles in the Spirit of Hospitality, we'd like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about here today about this book or anything else that you'd like our listeners to know?
0: Well, I think, you know, the one thing that I would say to anyone uh, kind of listening to this, uh, who I will guess would sort of be open and curious about religious experience and how it figures in ideas in stories, in art, in culture, politics today. You know, the, the one the one proposal request I would make is always read the living and the dead. I sometimes worry that religiously serious writers tend to read the reliable dead writers at the expense of living writers. And, and that this isn't simply a self-advertisement, but the more that we read religiously engaged contemporary living writers, the more this says to the publishing industry, and, uh, and people who put together a syllabi that yes, religiously serious fiction is in the here and now. It's not just something that happened decades ago. Um, so I would just encourage your readers, your listeners to read the living and the dead.
1: Any particular people you want to uh, recommend?
0: Right now, I really like this Norwegian writer named Jan Fosse. He has this seven novel sequence, they're short novels, very short novels, called Septology. About an aging Nor, uh, an aging Norwegian painter, uh, trying to make sense of faith and life and art at the end of his life, and it's it's it, formally it's very difficult. It's it's stream of consciousness, but it is beautiful. And the entire thing, in a sense, is almost uh, a sustained reflection on the opening of John's Gospel and what it means that the Word has become flesh, and what it means to see that in terms of light and darkness as a painter and as a person. It is remarkable. Uh, And then the only other one I'll cite for now would be the new Jonathan Franson novel, uh, Crossroads, which is all about a, uh, a Lutheran family in the 1970s and their kind of crack up. Uh, But what's amazing about it, I don't think Franson is a believer at all, but he does justice to religious life, to to belief, to what it means to try to live out your beliefs, to do so imperfectly. And never once does he wink, never once does he pull it up from underneath us and show us that, no, don't worry, we're smarter than these guys are. He really gives them the fullness of their faith commitments. And it uh, it is something very impressive to see. So Franson and Fosse.
1: Well, we have been talking to Randy Boyagoda, the author of Dante's Indiana, which is out now from Biblioasis. You can find a link to buy that book on the show notes for this episode of ChristianHumanist.org. Thanks for talking to me today, Randy.
0: Thank you very much. You take care, Michael. God bless you and your listeners.
1: You too.